Right. And turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. It is a long read. We're going to take the time to read these few verses. The story is good. Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. Mark 14, 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, seeing Peter warming himself. She looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them, but he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Many, many stories in the gospel narratives about Passion Week. And all of them, generically, have a purpose to challenge us concerning our relationship and perhaps more specifically, our devotion to Jesus as a disciple. Tonight, you can obviously see by now that our focus is going to be on Peter's denial, which is probably a story that you're very familiar with. It would be uh, ground that you've covered before, but I hope to show you a little bit differently tonight how you might see this text. Um, Just to start off, let me say this. If you weren't aware of it, the Gospel of Mark is really an eyewitness account uh, given by Peter. Peter... That name is mentioned 19 times in this gospel, and nine out of the six chapters have to do with him. Um, He is mentioned uh, 19 different times, but he's also, as I said before, mentioned eight times in our chapter tonight. So think of it, 
Out of the 19 times, basically half of them are in chapter 14. So tonight, I, I, I want to say that to you because when you hear what I'm going to say about this chapter tonight, you have to know that these things came directly from Peter. Um, he is related to Mark, John Mark. Um, some say that John Mark was the man that ran away from the Garden of Gethsemane for his life and dropped his clothes and ran. It says naked, but it only meant he had his underclothes on. Um, and some think because he didn't mention himself by name there that that was him and he is the one who wrote this gospel. Um, he's a relative of Peter and uh, most commentators say that he is the direct source. Uh, another thing that's great about this text I, or I should say about Mark itself, is that there are a lot of things that Mark puts in his gospel, and there are a couple details like that in our text, and I'm going to show you in a minute, that you would never put into a oral tradition. If this was a gospel that was written down and accumulated because people just verbally st- told stories of things that they had heard from others, they wouldn't have put down the words that are in this text. It wouldn't be certain details added. But because as a book writer by the name of Richard Baucom, who wrote a book, a very important book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and in it he says that Mark's gospel is not an oral tradition. It is an oral history. In other words, the accounts in this book, in this gospel, are because Mark went back and saw those people and actually talked to them because when he wrote his gospel, they were still alive, including Peter. And so when you hear these words, you're not just getting Mark's view of what uh, testimonies he got from other people. He is telling this story, probably having sat down directly and heard Peter for hours talk about what happened on that night. If you'll take your pen, if you're studying tonight, I want to show you how this chapter works. Um, The key word is witness or testimony. It's the Greek word in which we get the English word martyr. And I'm going to show you all the times it's used to let you see how it works. Uh, In chapter uh, 14, verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking, circle it there if you do that kind of thing, testimony. Now martyr is translated a couple different ways. Testimony against Jesus, uh, verse number six. There's two times. For many bore false witness, martyr, same word. Their testimony, verse 56, same word, martyr. It's also used in verse 57. It's used in verse 59. It's used again in verse 60. And also in verse 63. So in the very first section of our text tonight, the word martyr, witness, testimony, however it's translated, is used seven times. And I think it's because as you read this story, Jesus and Peter together, Mark wants you to ask yourself this question. This is what I did for myself this week in preparation. He wants to ask, what kind of witness are you? Now, you'll see in the text that it is, number one, a foil, meaning that There's obviously, by the use of those seven times of witness, there are religious leaders. And in the Greek, it says pseudo-martyr. means they gave false witness. And that's used a number of times. And and so the, 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 uh, the foil or the contrast is Jesus is the true witness. Revelation 1, 5 and 3, 14. He is called faithful and true witness. Jesus is the true witness. And in contrast... 
the leaders are false witnesses. So you look, this is what you want to be like. Mark would say this. As you read this text, here's what you say. I want to be like Jesus as a witness, and I want to watch him, how he does it, especially when he's under duress. I don't want to be like the false witnesses of the religious leaders, but it's more than that. Because we're going to talk about not just comparing ourselves to people who are unbelievers, even if they're religious. We're going to ask ourselves, what kind of witness was Peter in comparison to Jesus? So here's the question. Not because, not, it's, not, it's all right to compare, but most of us tonight would be much better witnesses than any religious unsaved person. But what about us when it comes to Peter? Would we be a good witness? Now, let me tell you how that works. Let me fill in the definition so you can have some criteria in which to fill in that definition so you can ask yourself an answer accurately. The martyr term is a word that means this, a true witness who is faithful to tell the truth about Jesus no matter what the cost. Okay, So it's not just someone who occasionally by their lips in life, tells about Jesus and speaks for Jesus and stands up for Jesus. No, it's as someone who, even in the most crucible times of life, speak up for him no matter what it would cost, and that is the key words. That's why martyrs, in our common English language, Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's all kinds of books about people who experience martyrdom. Why? Because they didn't drop Jesus when it meant forfeiting their lives. So you're really not a true witness altogether until you're willing to keep that faithfulness about your witness to the point of death. So let me, with that in mind, tell you how the structure of this works, because I'm hoping you'll do more on your own at another time, maybe even this weekend for Passion Week. Let me show you something that's in the text to show you that it's not just a story, an oral tradition, but it is an oral history. Verse 66 says this. Now, Peter was, encircle this, below in the courtyard. Now, if you're just writing a story and you're trying to make a point, you're not going to record mindless or seemingly useless details like Peter was below and Jesus was up top. Okay? But they do. And here's why Mark wants to do it. Okay? You need to picture this scene. There is a courtroom, perhaps uh, on the west side of Jerusalem, Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas's house was lavish. It was very spacious. Every house of size had a courtyard out front, and everybody could do it. Many times when Jesus did miracles and story, told stories and parables and teachings in a house, you'd have to sit out there. If you weren't invited in, you'd have to sit outside. And hopefully that you could get close enough to listen. So there's this courtyard leaning into the house, right? And that's where Peter is. Jesus is inside the house on the second floor. And so if we were making a movie of this text tonight, you would have it like all the religious leaders, they're all upstairs, and they're on the second floor. Jesus, and I'll add that, is standing up in the second floor, and he's on trial, and there's a window next to where he's standing. And at the same time, in the courtyard, there's a fireplace because at the time of Jesus' death, it got cold. It got really hot in the day and really cold at night in Israel. And so there's a fire going on. You don't think of the cross as people going like this, you know, and warming themselves up. But it was really cold during the night. 
And so he's warming up the fire, and they're all down there, and there's all kinds of people. There's a servant girl that keeps the gate. There are other servants there. There are people who led in. Peter himself got led in because he couldn't got in. The other disciple, John's gospel says, who led him in because he knew the high priest and the people that worked for him, and that was John. John led him in, and he got inside of the courtyard. And he's standing out there, and here's what the scene is. Jesus up here, Peter down here. And the scene goes like this, here, here. And if it was a movie, you'd see Jesus talking and being interrogated and on trial. And then eventually you see him being spit on, slapped in the face and all kinds of other things. And Peter is down here warming himself with the fire. And what you're supposed to, I think Mark was intending to do, is what I want to do for you tonight. Jesus is on trial formally. Peter is on trial informally. And Mark says, you're watching two people on trial. Two people who are going to be asked to be witnesses to the truth about Messiah and God. And the question is, which one are you like? Which one? So two stories, Jesus and Peter's, have been entwined all throughout Mark's gospel. And as you look at these two events, Jesus up top and, and Peter down below, you find that there are parallelisms and things that have both in mind. Both are surrounded by people questioning the, about Jesus' identity. They're asking Jesus who he is, and the people down in the lower court, they're asking Peter if they know who Jesus is and has he been with them. Both were witnesses. Jesus stayed true. Peter did not. Both had to pay the price for the kind of witness they chose to be but in completely different ways. And as you look at this text, I asked myself this week, and I want to ask you the same questions. What kind of witness are you? How far will you go to be faithful to Jesus? Would you be willing to be identified with him no matter what the cost? Do you think tonight that you are stronger in your love for Jesus than you perhaps really are? Those are all good questions for us to ask as we watch the two being tried side side by side. What does it mean to look like Jesus? What does it mean to look like a true witness? So Peter's going to show us in this text what it doesn't and should not look like. And I'm going to use the heading of Peter the failure. Let me show you what I mean. Keep following me. Verse 54, it says, and Peter followed him at a distance. It's the word that has the prefix macro, you know, large, macro, micro, small. He stayed at a large distance away because in his thinking, if he got too close, which he does when he goes into the courtyard, he says he thinks it's going to get him into trouble, and it does. But at first, he wants to follow. And by the way, don't condemn him altogether because including him and John who came with him at least to the entrance of the courtyard. All the other disciples, when they fled, they didn't come back. Peter ran for a little bit and came back. And he's following. He is the number one best leader. He is the number one disciple. And he remembers what he said, that if I go out to prison and to death, I will never deny you. And he's seeking to fulfill those words. So he's following him at a distance. Some commentators have said literally he is, and so is he metaphorically, because he's starting to get a gap between him and Jesus. 
the more difficult his life becomes, the more troublesome it is to stand up for Jesus and be faithful for Jesus, the further he gets away. So you have two religious leaders, two scenes, and on the top, a trial of Jesus, and here's what's happening. The religious leaders are denying who he is, and they are shaming him. That is blasphemy. They don't know it, wouldn't have believed it, but it's true. Crazy enough, on the bottom, Peter, who knows better, is also denying Jesus and shaming Jesus, and it's blasphemy, but he doesn't realize it either. I wrote down in my notes tonight, and I wanted to share it with you, ordinary life is a trial. Ordinary life is a trial. You don't have to be in a formal courtroom to be on trial. Your life and mine literally, I should say, are on trial every day. And here's how, in everyday circumstances and with everyday people. Did you notice he didn't stand before the religious leaders like Jesus? He wasn't asked to be a witness before centurions that could arrest him immediately. Did you notice where he was? He wasn't in a trial with the front of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't in some normal court temple, I, mean, I should say, uh, trial situation. He was in a courtyard standing by a fire in ordinary circumstances And he was approached two times by a slave girl. It's the same word used in Acts 12, 13 and Acts 16, 16. Remember the little girl that came to the door when the angel let Peter out of prison and they knocked and she opened it up and then she shut it back. Basically, it can't be him. She's a little slave girl. And this little slave girl lets Peter in. And once she lets him in, two different times she approaches him and she comes back and says, I've seen you before. I think you were with him. This is a little slave girl. Now imagine, this is Peter, the number one disciple, said, no matter what happens to me, listen to what he's saying. If I will go to prison and to death, those are extraordinary events and extraordinary people. He would have to be arrested by Roman soldiers. He would have to be tried, and he would have to be crucified, and the religious leaders would be in on it. See, he's not, he says, God, I'll do all the big things for you. But can I tell you this? The average Christian is on trial every day in none of those types of circumstances. It's the courtyards that we're in. It's the fires that we sit beside and warm our hands through. It's the served girls, servant girls, and the bystanders who in our text are not even named. The ordinary people that we rub shoulders with and we're around them. See, that's what your trial is like every single day. I wrote, if, you gotta, if you're on trial, in fact, I heard this in high school, actually. If you're on trial for being a disciple of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough ordinary evidence to convict you? What about your coworkers at your job? If we interviewed them today and we don't even know them, they're not the movers and shakers of this world. They're ordinary people who work at your job in ordinary circumstances like you do. And if we ask them, hey, you know so-and-so, are they a Christian? Would they say, what? Or they say, oh, yeah, they are. It's pretty obvious. I know what they say and how they think about things and what they do and what they won't do. Yeah, I know. Or would they be shocked? Or I knew they went to church, but that was all I know. 
Would you be ashamed to identify with Jesus? Are you in conversations that come up about him this time of year or any other time of the year? What would your neighbors know about you? What about your own family that you speak to and they're going to speak to you maybe already this Easter? Would people know that if you handed them an invitation to the Easter musical drama that you even go to this church? See, it's not the big events, it's not the formal trials, it's not the movers and shakers of this world that we stand before. That's not who we're on trial with. You know why we're on trial? We're on trial with people who just are in our neighborhood, at our jobs, in our families, people that no one else knows or wouldn't know their names, but they know us. Would there be enough evidence to convict us of being a Christian? Would they hear different kinds of language with us Or would they be similar language and similar jokes that they would use? Would they see a difference in our lives that would point to Christ and the integrity of our business deals that we do at the job that we have? If we went on business trips and took plane trips and hotels and we were out with everybody else and no one else was around, no one else was looking over our shoulder, would they know that on business trips no one else would know that we are not duplicitous, but we are the same people whether we're in front of everyone or in front of no one. What about your conduct? What about your views on morality? What about your marriage and how you talk about your spouse? And, or do you complain about them and the way that your kids are? Or would they na- know that you love your wife or you love your husband and you are close to them and you're devoted to them? See, following at a distance isn't just literal geography. It can start off that way in our lives. Ordinary things. Peter had been in the witness chair not once but twice. And the witness chair and the prosecutor was a little slave girl. The third time was the climax. It's the climax of the story. It's the climax of the book other than Jesus' cross, death, and resurrection, of course. And Peter becomes a failure But I want to show you this, and you may not see it yourself, but I want to kind of give you my idea of how it goes. There is a place where Peter comes to that if I think if we asked him tonight and we could have Peter here and he could stand in front of us, I think he would say this, I could never in a million years dream that I was capable of saying what I said about Jesus. Not only was I not a true witness, it wasn't like... Some of us who say nothing about him and we're silent. It wasn't just that he denied knowing him, as bad as that is. Now, keep that in mind. The number one disciple, the best leader going. But look at the text. Can you look at verse 70? But again, and notice, when the slave girl comes to him a second time, Mark wants you to know, not the first time, he fell twice to a slave girl. Twice. And then it says again, verse 70, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again, see, Mark keeps saying it. He wants you to know he keeps doing it over and over again, and it's getting worse. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Now, I know in our vernacular today, cursing and swearing means you're using some level of profanity. These are not the words that are used in the Bible. He's not using bad words And by the way, let me give you, ready? We're going to go in the deep end grammatically just for one minute. All right? Curse and swear. 
Curse is, ready? It's not a reflexive verb. And by that I mean this. The translation isn't the best when it says he began to, to invoke a curse on himself. If it was reflexive, the words on himself would be accurate. But this is not a Greek reflexive verb because there would be another word in the Greek text, atu or etu, and it would be added to it and you would say himself. But that word is not there because it's not a reflexive verb, it's a transitive verb. And a transitive verb always demands an object, a direct object. And so they have chosen without a pronoun himself there, which would be wrong, because they think he's cursing and swearing about himself. But the Greek words won't allow for that. What he's doing is cursing and swearing about Jesus. Because the explanation for the cursing and swearing is the next phrase. I do not know this man of whom you speak. This man is what he's talking about. So what are the cursing and swearing? The word curse in the Greek is the word in English we get anathematize. It means to have God curse one to eternal punishment. What is happening is the third time... Because Peter fills the agains, he has felt that he's given in to a slave girl, and now innocent bystanders just warming themselves around are after him, and he is done. So here's what he does. He swears, takes an oath that what he is saying about Jesus, mainly I don't know him, is absolute truth. And to prove it, here's what he does. Get this. He curses Jesus to hell. Can you imagine that? That's awful as it gets. Now, you'll know, you can figure it out now, right? So when it says, when he realized what he had done, he broke down and wept. Luke's gospel says he wept picros. He wept bitterly, meaning uncontrollably and in anger, and so upset that he had ever done that. Can I tell you, read all the pages of the sages and about relationships that rabbis have with their disciples. And let me go a step further. Rabbis have with their number one disciple. And can I tell you this? It has never been heard of that any rabbi this close and trusted by any disciple or Talmud that was trusted by his rabbi would ever have done this. In my knowledge and research, I don't know if there's any... any other example of it than this. It was unheard of that a rabbi and disciple this close, that the rabbi's disciple would curse him publicly. That's what Peter did. See, Peter was a failure, and I don't think that he could ever imagine that he could have done that. Not only did he think he could have done it, that he would have actually done it? Impossible in his mind. He already said, I'll go to prison and death for you. He couldn't even stand up for him. In fact, not only did he not stand up for him or just be silent, he cursed him. He he called down curses from God on Jesus. How does that happen? I have talked to people in the churches I've worked, not very many, but the churches I've been in over the years, and I've asked people, when they used to be this, and now they were this. And I ask, how did you get there? 
You know what they said? I never saw this day coming. I never thought that that would be me. I've talked to people, heard about people, had stories about people that used to be this and their life just fell apart and they fell. I've heard those stories. I never thought I would be one of them because they, like Peter, overestimated their devotion and underestimated their capabilities for denial. That's how it happens. We think we're more devoted than we are and we don't believe that we could deny and have that capability. And Peter tells us, if you think that way, you are fooling yourself. Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And Peter shows us, that's not how a true witness acts. That's not how he lives. But I'm so grateful tonight in the last five minutes that that's not where Peter's story ends. What made the difference from Peter? How did he go from biggest loser to biggest leader? Right? How did he change? I would tell you this. It was the death and resurrection of Jesus that changed him. After his denial, he weeps bitterly. You don't see him for a little bit. But the very last use of Peter's name in this gospel of Mark is in chapter 16 and verse 7. Turn there and I'll read to you. And I want to show you... (coughs) Two of the most seemingly mundane, common words, phraseology with little significance that is more powerful than you would ever believe and can be so in your life tonight. The verse reads, but go, this is the angel, telling the disciples what to do that Jesus had said. But go tell his disciples, encircle these two words, and Peter, and Peter. That he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him, just as he told you. And Peter, I thought long and hard this week, why? Because in chapter 16 and verse 14, look down, they as a group can be addressed anonymously, without anyone's name, because in verse 14 it says, and they appeared to the 11. He, the angel, instructed by Jesus, could have said, go and tell the 11. He did not. Go and tell his disciples, notice, his disciples, and Peter is still one of them. And he singles him out, but he did not say, go and tell the disciples and John, because listen, all of the disciples fled. All of them betrayed him. All of them denied him. None of them but John were at the cross, but he hasn't singled them out. Why? Because this is Peter's version of the story. And he wants you to know this. If you have been the worst failure, you can be forgiven. And you know why I think that Jesus had the angel say, and Peter? Because I'm thinking Peter would have thought, if he didn't hear his name, I'm not going. I'm not going. All the disciples, I don't qualify for that term anymore. I'm not a disciple. I did the worst thing that any Talmud could ever do to his rabbi. I am the worst disciple there has ever been, and I thought I was the best. He cannot be including me in that list of people he wants to see. And so here's what the angel says, and Peter, yes, he does. You know how much he wants to see you? He's going to tell you by name. He must have thought Jesus is done with me. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever looked at your past? Hmm, maybe your present. 
There's no way that I could be a follower. There's no way I could really just be a disciple. There's no way God's going to use me. I, I forfeited that opportunity a long time. I still not would. You know how far away I am sometimes? And here's what God says. And, and then you put your name in there. <laughs> and Lance. And whoever else it is. You know why? Because failure is not final. And it can be forgiven. I, I thought about this. As I thought about this verse. He didn't have the angel say, and Peter, and then add this, and Peter, that filthy, rotten, good-for-nothing, worthless, unfaithful witness. That's what the words I would have put in there probably. He could have said that, and he still would have included him, but he wanted to let him have it. Now, that's probably what you and I would probably more likely to do, right? Say, I'm going to include you, Peter, but I want you to know, dude, I'm beating you up for a long time over this one. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't do that either. And so we see John 21, Peter the failure turns to be Peter the forgiven. And Jesus, can you imagine sitting, watch, sitting by coals of fire. Do you know the only time coals of fire is used in the gospel are the times when Peter denied Jesus and when he's sitting on the shore with him? Because he wants to say, deja vu, does this scene look familiar? Do you still think you love me more than all the rest of them? And now he has to say, Lord, you know I love you. I, I can't say that. I, I love you, but I don't love you better than I'm not ready for prison and for death. I'm not. And he asked him three times. That had to hurt. I can't imagine that after the first time that Peter doesn't start crying again like the night he cried he did it the first time. It's so raw. It's still so real. It hadn't even happened but barely a couple weeks ago. How do you get past your failure How do you believe that Jesus would put your name in there? How do you think that he would ever want to use you? You have to plunge your failure into his forgiveness. I love the text, and I'll close. 1 John 1, 7. I'm sorry, verse 9. If we confess our sins, confess, homologia, say the same thing about. If we say the same thing, if we confess our sins, watch this. He is faithful and just you know what, for the longest time, I thought it might have been better, so I didn't mean that Holy Spirit, that it might be faithful and merciful, but it doesn't say that. It's diakos, it's righteous. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what that verse is followed with? Okay, here's a hard one. Chapter 2, verse 1. And if any man sin, we have a advocate Jesus Christ the righteous you know how we can be forgiven and know that God will use us because when we are in trial and on trial and in a court every day and we mess it up you know what counts the most not your righteousness his (laughs) plunge yourself into that plunge yourself into that kind of forgiveness that kind of love and the righteousness of Jesus, that when you stand on trial and you get up and people will say, you should be condemned, and they don't want to include your name in the group anymore, you know what you tell them? I was looking at Jesus Christ. He stands up for me. He'll represent me. He's my lawyer. He's my advocate. And I want you to know, when you mess up and you don't pass the trial, and you say things and do things that shame your rabbi, know this, he's standing up for you.
And his righteousness is the reason why you can be forgiven and used. You, like Peter and me, we can be going from failure to forgiven because of him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thankful. So thankful that you didn't leave us where we were. You didn't turn your back on us. Instead, the Father turned his back on you so that he would never be able to do so to us. And Peter. What a glorious truth. To put our name in there. To know that when we blow it as followers, that you forgive when we confess. Not because you're merciful, because you're righteous. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's what we are clothed in. That's what makes the difference. Thank you, Lord, in the courtroom of our lives, when we are guilty and should be condemned, that you took our place, that you stand up for us. God, may that move us, really move us, to be true witnesses for you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' righteous name. Amen. You are dismissed.